0: Hello, this is UCL Uncovering Politics, and this week we're looking at the real-world impacts of IMF lending. My name is Alan Rennick and welcome to UCL Uncovering Politics, the podcast of the School of Public Policy and Department of Political Science at University College London. This week, we're focusing on a new book about IMF lending. The IMF, the International Monetary Fund, exists, among other things, to provide policy advice and financial support to governments facing economic difficulties. But are its programmes effective? Well, the book that we're discussing gives reason for doubt. It suggests that IMF funding becomes a resource held by local leaders, which those leaders can use to benefit their own supporters to the detriment of of the rest of the population. The book called IMF Lending, Partisanship, Punishment and Protest has two authors, and I'm delighted that both of them join me here to discuss it. Dr. Rod Abu Harb is Associate Professor in International Relations here in the UCL Department of Political Science. And Dr. Bernhard Reinsberg is Reader in Politics and International Relations at the University of Glasgow, and also a Research Associate in Political Economy at the Centre for Business Research at the University of Cambridge. Rod and Bernhard, welcome both to UCL Uncovering Politics. It's great to have you both here. And I think it's perhaps useful if we just start off with a little bit of background here. So many listeners, I suspect, will have heard of the IMF, but maybe don't have much sense of what it actually is. So Bernhard, do you want to start us off just by explaining what is the IMF and what does it do?
1: Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for having us. So, the IMF was created together with the World Bank in 1944 at the Bretton Woods Conference, and the IMF's role was to oversee the system of packed exchange rates of member governments and to provide a contingency reserve fund on which countries could draw on in case of balance of payments problems. Today, the institution has over 190 member states um, and has three main functions. First is the macroeconomic surveillance of members' economic policies. Uh, Second is to provide technical assistance on fiscal affairs, for instance, but also many other aspects of policymaking. And third, and most controversial, uh, to provide loans for countries in economic trouble.
0: So can you tell us a little bit about the circumstances in which countries end up getting loans from IMF?
1: Absolutely. So countries can uh, borrow up to their quota and can go beyond that quota if needed. Um, and this is often to do with uh, excessive fiscal deficits, uh, excessive debt um, that you know, prevents countries from meeting uh, their payment obligations, often de- denominated in foreign currency. So the IMF provides hard currency, fresh capital, when these countries uh, need to repay their debt obligations.
0: How often does that happen? Do we have a sense of how many countries are currently in receipt of IMF loans?
1: There was a heyday of of these programs in the mid-90s when we had the Asian financial crisis, um, where we had about 68 active programs. Um, And this number has come off slightly, um, so to about 40 to 50 in the most recent decade. But currently, uh, we are also in, in that range between 30 and 40 Uh, countries, and uh, the numbers are projected to rise again, as again, many countries are suffocating uh, from the massive debt they have accumulated over the uh, course of the COVID-19 pandemic.
0: Mm. And Rod, maybe we should should bring you in at this point. Um, A concept that is relevant for this funding that comes up in the book is the concept of conditionality. Uh, Do you want to
2: just explain what that means? Sure. Sure. Uh, conditionality has been something that has been associated with IMF lending from its very beginning, uh, and essentially the the idea is that um, you know governments who want to kind of uh, borrow above above the ceiling that Bernard was talking about, um, well, there's no such thing as sort of a free lunch, right? So, um, so the IMF will demand a, a range of economic reforms from these um, member states in order to receive these additional funds and that uh, these reforms are sort of broadly labeled conditionality uh, but they can range from um, things like you know uh, sort of privatizing a variety of state assets um, they can include you know potentially increasing your sort of tax base or or, or having to engage sort of austerity cuts and it's usually with a view to kind of balancing the budget and, as Bernard was saying, to kind of pay back your debtors. Uh, and the, the the underlying principle is that these uh, economies will function much better once they're sort of brought back into balance. Uh, but also, I think the, the other thing that is important to think about with the uh, conditionality is that it's not um, neutral in its approach. So there, there is a, an idea that a, a smaller state, in general, is better. Um, one where uh, the the state tends to have less involvement in society is better. And from the you know the the economists who defend this approach say that it really sort of minimises the probability of um, corruption, of, uh, kind of inefficient state intervention. Um, in the economy. So there's a sort of underlying normative set of arguments that economists make about why they should be handling these sort of debt crises in this particular way. I'm interested that
0: you're saying that that policy direction comes from economists. I I, I guess, so I, I, I know very little about the IMF, but I guess my hunch would have been that there are power structures in the IMF and that there are some member states that are more powerful than others, and that those might be kind of directing the policy stance that is taken. I mean, to what extent is it a kind of technocratic process? And to what extent is it more political and shaped by the interests
2: of the member states? Well, I mean, it's clearly both. So I don't want to kind of uh, uh, sort of overemphasize that. And and we know, you know, there is this kind of long standing, kind of informal agreement that um, the head of the the World Bank is an American... Right, the, the head of the IMF is European, right? so politics is clearly heavily involved here. Um, and politics is often also involved in terms of, of who gets loans and the types of conditions that they have, sort of how stringent they are or not. So are they allies of the US or the UK? And there's as, there's a long line of research that looks at the politics behind the lending. But the, uh, the economics behind it is uh it is is also something that has changed over time and i'm you know i th- i think both matter here but um the, the perhaps the, the 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 clearest example that you've seen in in the sort of the change is the, there are a number of sort of economic models that they tried to use in the sort of 50s and 60s primarily at the world bank in terms of sort of building last, large pieces of infrastructure and these other things and that didn't seem to work very well um, so partly driven by that, um, partly driven by a, a, a normative push that you saw in the US and the UK with sort of neoliberal economics, um, taking a forefront that you actually saw that the, the content of what the bank and fund do change over time, mm-hmm. but that was also a function of who they employ. So there's a, a long line of research looking at, you know, the fact that if you went to the, if you did economics in Chicago, you got hired, right? Um, if you did heterodox economic, economics elsewhere, you probably weren't going to get hired. So there is a particular ideological direction of certainly the IMF. I think the World Bank is probably uh, sort of broader in its approach to to these sort of development issues. Hmm, interesting. Bernhard, do you want to come in on that at all? No okay sure uh, in that case okay. i will i will go into another
0: question i should have said if, if ever you do want to come in just stick a hand up and, and, and you can come in um okay so that's really interesting so um we'll get onto your book in just a moment but before we do that it's useful just to understand what we already know from the existing literature and i guess particularly what we know about the impact of imf programs and imf lending and brenhardt do you want to tell us a little bit about that
1: yeah. So certainly there's um, you know a great interest um, in sort of the social economic consequences of these IMF programs. Um, so of course, economists have often evaluated the IMF by what it's meant to achieve, namely to stabilize these countries, which I agree is, is sort of a very important dimension. Uh, but here there's no consensus really. Um, so whether or not the uh, IMF programs help countries to Uh, get back on track with economic growth is still an open question some findings uh, say yes others say no for sure we do have evidence that uh, imf programs do not help countries avert future financial crises in fact uh, one can show that imf programs increase the moral hazard for some countries at least namely those that are politically well connected to the major shareholders and uh, that this moral hazard creates uh, reckless behavior in terms of uh, yeah, self-insurance with, with uh, reserves and more reckless economic
0: policies. Great, thank you. So that's very useful context for your study. Rod, do you want to explain just what exactly it is that you're focusing on in this book? What's the core question that you're trying to answer? So I
2: think the way we began thinking about this book Bernard and I had a nice nice chat during the COVID lockdown. I was sitting in the back garden at that point in time, and I think Bernard was in some sunny location in Glasgow. Uh, and w- what really struck us about the kind of the existing literature, for, for me, there are a couple of puzzles. Uh, so one is that, uh, as you've seen, uh, overwhelmingly kind of negative effects of these programs. Um, on on society at large, sort of worsening all sorts of areas of inequality, but also some evidence that politicians stay in power longer when they go into these programs. And that to me seems like a puzzle. So there's austerity, there's protests, there's uh, poverty, but somehow politicians aren't being thrown out. So there's there's something going on there. So I think that's one puzzle. And then I think the other two uh, things that really kind of grated on me, and that's because I'm a political scientist and I think about how governments retain power rather than an economist. So there are some very well-worn arguments in economics about who gets listened to. And these are primarily the groups that are most well-organized. And so this is the literature that, that we know well but there's also, I think, a tension there by saying, well, look, if governments simply listen to those groups who are well organized, then how do they respond to their voters? Because they need their voters to stay in office. Uh, and I think that's where this interest group, group approach um, really underplays the role of governments as political actors in the distribution of uh, pain and benefit from these programs. So that's where our argument comes from. Um, And so we think that when governments, you know, face these difficult economic situations, they go to the fund for help. They don't have that much choice about what they can do. So they really have to implement uh, the agreements that they make. But nevertheless, these these increments have discretion and we think governments use that discretion for their own political advantage. So they will cut spending in opposition areas and they will try to protect their own supporters. So these kind of inequality uh, outcomes that we see and the fact that inequality worsens, we're able to explain who is this being done to. So th- these in these societies, not everyone is in this together. We find pretty strong evidence, as I'm sure we'll talk about that the opposition is hit hardest here. Um, and then it's the opposition who protests. Mm-hmm. So our, uh, I guess our, the value of what we're doing is really tries to kind of unpack at the individual level what the consequences of these programmes are. Mm. Great, thank
0: you. So there are kind of two core hypotheses, if I understand correctly, that are coming from from that detailed thinking. So one is a hypothesis that the costs associated with IMF programmes will be concentrated upon the opponents of governments, the opponents of those in power. Uh, and second, that that will lead to a protest on mm-hmm. the part of those people. And so what you're doing in the book is essentially testing those two hypotheses and seeing whether that's what's happening. And there's also an argument around the conditionality that we were mentioning there uh, earlier, isn't there? And so I was, I was quite curious by the, about this because you... Um, The argument is that the more conditionality there is associated with IMF lending, the worse this problem becomes. And you might think that it would get better, that somehow the conditionality would keep the government on the straight and narrow. Mm -hmm. But actually, the hypothesis is that it makes things worse. Mm -hmm. Do you
2: want to explain that? Sure. And and, and the logic behind that is really that with all these conditions that governments need to meet... that oftentimes there is discretion on how you meet the condition so you know some examples from some of the kind of the the case illustrations that we have in the book um, oftentimes governments are faced with demands to uh, restrict the the size of the civil service Um, you saw this in Kenya you saw this in Ghana they'll be they'll be told well you need to reduce the numbers of your civil servants by 20,000 30,000 but there isn't any specifics about who is cut or where the cuts take place and it's in these areas where you know governments have the most control so particularly in the in the public sector that we think you see this kind of distributional politics taking place you know so if if the government has the option to to close a a civil service in a government-held constituency, in comparison to an op- opposition-held constituency, we think they'll close the one in the opposition-held constituency.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, now, demonstrating that is really difficult. Uh, so, you know, governments don't go around advertising this, um, and they often don't go around kind of recording this type of information. But there are a number of observable implications for things like that. You know, so it may well be that, in ty- that when when they go into these programs that actually opposition fares worst in terms of employment, in terms of access to food, um, in terms of their evaluation of their life chances going forward and these other types of metrics. And if there's a significant difference between how the opposition view that and how the government supporters view that, then we know there's something going on here. And then, then I think the really strongest set of tests is... What does that what do those differences look like when states are not under IMF lending, right? Do you see this these significant differences or not? So it's not that we don't think distributional politics isn't at play in in periods before, but we actually think it's much worse when governments go under these programs for these two reasons. So one is that they have this sort of curtailed fiscal envelope that they have to deal with that, right? So there's cuts they have less money and now they have to choose what to do with this um, constrained amount of money that they have and we think that they will try to benefit their supporters first Um, so it so given that someone has to pay for that uh, Mm. and we think it's the it's the opposition that pays Mm. and it makes sense right why not they're they're not going to vote for you anyway so so why not burden that (laughs)
0: So, really interesting. I'd like to pursue that further in just a moment, um, but just before we do so, we, we should perhaps just um, be clear about the methodology uh, of the study. And you've started to talk there a bit about the the evidence that you draw on. And Bernhard, do you want to take us through the logic of the methodology a bit more? So, you've got both qualitative and quantitative evidence yeah. that you're drawing in here.
1: Indeed, we do combine qualitative and quantitative evidence. So, um, on the question of how people perceive um, these programs uh, under different conditions, we we first look at uh, case studies, particularly the case of Ghana. And uh, this this allows us basically to overcome one limitation of common survey data sets, which is that they don't have repeated observations, right? So here we can really draw out uh, how different governments when facing similar demands uh, from the IMF, implement these conditions uh, with a view to supporting their own, so, to uh, rewarding their own supporters and, and punishing opposition supporters. Uh, this was the case in, uh, in Ghana, as we said, uh, from uh, when we see the transition from uh, the Rawlings to the Kufur administration. Um, I'm sure Rod will be able to, to tell you a bit more about that. Um, so this was sort of our our thinking here to to use sort of an intertemporal or over time comparison of of the case of Ghana. Um, we we u- use the same method uh, when we look at the case of Kenya, where we uh, draw out sort of the differences in who protests um, across these two administrations. Now we complement that because. Um, You know, with with, with singular case studies, it's often difficult to to generalize, right? So here, the strength of the large-end analysis comes in and we mobilize evidence from four global barometers with broadly consistent findings, actually. Um, So barometers, you're referring
0: here to multinational um, uh, uh, public opinion surveys.
1: Exactly. Um, So first, um, the Afrobarometer from 1999 to 2001. Um, A heyday of structural adjustment and the Asian barometer from 2005 to 2008 um, and and the Latin American barometer from 2005, as well as a global longitudinal world value survey uh, data set. What is our approach here? Uh, We we have a staged approach really where we first try to uh, show the the general patterns in the data between um, opposition supporters and government supporters with respect to the evaluations of these IMF programs and protest behavior. Now, this can of course be uh, an ongoing feature of these societies, so that alone doesn't tell us much, which is why we also bring in uh, this additional aspect of uh, when whether or not countries are under an IMF program. Um, and it's precisely in those cases that we see an, an intensification of the distributive politics We also exploit the variation in the design of IMF programs, finding that uh, these these programs with more conditions, which leave governments more discretion to lump adjustment burdens on the opposition, also see a greater divergence between opposition and government supporters.
0: So uh, you've kind of answered the question that I was about to ask you there, which was that, so the hypothesis is that the costs of IMF programmes will be concentrated upon government opponents. And in order to test that, you're looking at public opinion and you're seeing that opposition supporters are less likely to be supportive of the programme. But of course, you could say, think, well, maybe that's just because they're opposition supporters mm-hmm. and they're not going to like what the government does. So it might not be an indicator of, of objectively what's actually going on. But what you're saying there, if I understand, is that crucially, we find this effect only where the IMF are involved. We don't find the same effect where the IMF are not involved, where there is some kind of crisis and there's a need for structural adjustment on on the part of the government, but the IMF are not involved. And you're saying in those cases, we we don't get the the problem. So it seems to be specifically where the IMF is involved that that we get this effect.
1: Is that correct? Exactly. Indeed. So... Of course, this is a super difficult challenge to untangle these perceptive biases with uh, the the real effects that that these programs may have. Um, But we undertake several empirical strategies to circumvent this challenge. So just looking at the outcome, for instance, uh, that the structural adjustment program made my life worse, right? We, We do find, of course, a baseline differences between different partisans. Um, but but this difference increases when a country is under an IMF program, so that that gives us some indication that it must be related to the uh, problems uh, that 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 come along with these IMF programs and with the yeah increased pressure for distributive politics that that governments uh, mount in these cases. So uh, just to give you an idea of of the numbers here, the the baseline difference is fifteen percentage points. But it is 20 or 25 percentage points under an IMF program between the two uh, partisans. And once you look within those countries that already have a program, you'll find a 10 percentage point difference uh, between the programs with few conditions and the programs with many conditions. So again, a further intensification of this effect um, here in the case of the Afrobarometer. Now, a second very convincing test that we do at least from from our perspective is uh, that we look at material outcomes so of course these are perception-based measures that we typically have in these surveys um, but uh, we have no indication that people would lie uh, to the interviewers when when asked about whether they faced uh, material hardships such as gone gun without food gun without medicine or gun without income and here we find uh, again very strong effects Uh, so about 2.2 index points on a 1 to 12 scale Uh, if if a country is third test we also show that that these results hold along ethnic lines so we would expect this uh, given what we know about african politics Uh, this is also a finding that is consistent with uh, with the distributive politics hypothesis that we advance
0: that's all on the first hypothesis Rod do you want to tell us what the evidence is with regard to protest
2: and the impact of these patterns upon protest? Sure Um, so as as Bernard was saying distributional politics is is sort of not taking place um, outside of these financial crises but we think that the the fund makes things makes these issues worse Um, and and you see that with respect to to protest as well so um, you know at uh, as the number of, of conditions increase, so does the protest. And this this fits well with our argument that the government is sort of burdening opposition with the costs of these programmes. And then people naturally protest that, right, because they don't think it's fair, because uh, they see it. Um, and, you know, there's, there's evidence for, uh, you know, in this... Um, with respect to the case studies as well. So Kenya is a kind of a a really good example. As Bernard was mentioning, we have this, you know, sort of intertemporal approach where we examine, you know, countries that were under IMF lending, but the government changes from one one type to another. Uh, And then with the change in government, even though the the loan conditions remain almost exactly the same the behaviors of the government changes um, and so you see this in uh, in Kenya under the the the, the Moy administration he is backed by kind of a, a relatively narrow section of the population the the Kalen uh, ethnic group and he is it seems to be okay with people protesting him uh, as long as it's not his voters. So, so you see these types of protests erupt because of the cuts in public sector spending in, in civil service that he makes. Um, and then, and then for, for example, for the civil servants that are left, they get pay increases. So even in times of austerity, there is the concentration of wealth in particular areas. Um, and if you look at where the protests were taking place in Kenya, these protests were taking place in opposition held areas of the country. And and oftentimes these were civil servants that hadn't been paid or had, had upfaded, faced sort of a wide variety of cuts, um, whereas other civil servants seemingly weren't protesting. Um, so there was a real sort of geographic distribution in, in the protests that, that took place. And then if you compare, let's say, the, uh, the, the Moy administration with the, um, uh, with the Kabaki administration that followed next, uh, his support base was much broader across Kenya. And actually what you saw because of that, there was a, a deep reluctance to actually engage in any cuts precisely because he was worried about the consequences for protest. And in some cases, this is understandable. In other cases, you saw uh, reforms that probably would have benefited uh, the Kenyan economy then not happen. So um, you saw uh, arguments about kind of liberalizing the the maize sector not taking place because it was a a locus of support for him, even though Kenya was dealing with all sorts of uh, kind of food insecurity uh, because the, the, the maize sector of the economy had was relatively close to that
0: point. Okay, so we're getting close to the end of our time, alas, but there are two really important questions that I still want to get in. One of them is still about these results. So so I understand the the broad picture and I understand the argument and the evidence and that seems very clear. I guess what I don't yet get is why is it that the IMF is actually making things worse here? So you're comparing countries that go into IMF lending with countries that also have crises and also need to go through some kind of adjustment program but don't have the IMF lending Um, and why is it not the case that those those countries also have governments that try to concentrate the costs among opponents why is it that we're particularly seeing this effect among those countries that need to go to the IMF Bernhardt do you want to start on that
1: yeah So one might, of course, think that the IMF reduces discretion for for governments, which is a popular argument in the literature. Um, But in fact, we show that uh, the opposite is actually true. Uh, And and this is because that there are certainly different layers of discretion that that governments have, right? And uh, once they face more demands from the IMF, more conditions, they can also lump more burdens upon opposition supporters. So in in some sense, this is an ideal window of opportunity to speak from a perspective of a politically motivated leader uh, to to play these distributive politics out in a much greater uh, extent than they would otherwise be able to do.
0: I guess that leads on then to the final question, Broad. what are the policy implications here? What should the IMF be doing differently as a result of the analysis that you present in this book?
2: Well, it's a really good question. And we've thought a lot about this. And I think one of the problems here is there's plenty of blame to go around. So the, if you like, the, the local political economy story is about Politicians acting like politicians, right? They're sort of fairly badly behaved. They want to make this for their own advantage, and and some people within their societies benefit from that, but a lot of people, a lot of people don't. And of course, then the, the the problem is that if you then reduce the discretion in these loans, um, which is the obvious thing to do, uh, and being kind of much more prescriptive about what these um governments are allowed to do in order to uh, to receive these this funding i think the the politics of this then becomes one of claims around sort of neo-colonialism and these other types of claims you've seen this made by politi- by kenyan politicians and others um, there are a number of episodes where they go where the imf wanted them to put through uh, Anti corruption bills uh, into parliament because they knew large amounts of money was being siphoned off by these corrupt politicians. And then this gets framed as some kind of post colonial enterprise by the IMF against developing economies. And so this is very, I think, politically very difficult. I think we can identify what is going wrong here in terms of the discretion that then politicians are using for their own advantage. Um, but whether or not that's politically feasible to remove that discretion because then governments won't go to the IMF for, for, for loans they'll go to the Chinese for loans right uh, they'll go to to other actors for loans and that also has political implications um, you know we, we know that this funding is used for kind of soft power purposes as well and so if The US and its allies lose that opportunity, uh, that political opportunity with this institution and it goes elsewhere, then is that something that they're willing to support, Um, even if it means less corruption, um, less inequality, less protest? Mm.
0: That's fascinating. So it's a real policy quandary. Mm Uh, facing the IMF there. Well, thank you so much, Rod and Bernhard. Alas, we have to finish it there, but it's been a really interesting conversation. I uh, I confess that when we when I saw that this topic was coming up, I thought, gosh, that's quite dry. <laughs> uh, but actually, it's incredibly important, and uh, it's really fa- fascinating to hear you talking about the book. So we have been discussing the book IMF Lending, Partisanship, Punishment, and Protest by Rodwan Abu Harb and Bernhard Reinsberg. It will be out imminently, published by Cambridge University Press as part of the Cambridge Elements series and it's available now for pre-order online. As ever, you will find all of those details in the show notes for this episode. Next week is Reading Week here at UCL, so we'll be taking a short break, but we'll be back in two weeks' time to discuss some intriguing new research on the philosophy of language. Can you, for example, make a promise if the person you are speaking with doesn't recognise that you have done so? Remember to make sure you don't miss out on that or other future episodes of UCL Uncovering Politics. All you need to do is subscribe. You can do so on Apple, Google Podcasts or whatever podcast provider you use. I'm Alan Rennick. This episode was produced by Alice Hart and Eleanor kingwell Bannum. Our theme music is written and performed by John Matt. This has been UCL Uncovering Politics. Thank you for listening.